On fossil downs and cane grass station in a million homes across the nation, they're tuning in Australia. We're in a motorhome and we have not seen as many motorhomes on the roads. There's a lot of people out there. They're visiting these towns, which is fantastic. Macca, the, the country out here is just the best I've seen it. And places are looking great and people are visiting. The caravan park we're in was full. It's been different from what it was, I think, 10 years ago when it was in drought, when the Queen was over. She was in drought too. And Tom, you're in a phone box making a free call this morning, aren't you? Yeah, very interesting. It's the first time I've been in a phone box where the local yellow pages are still in the plastic cover when it got delivered from however many months ago. And, um, yeah, it hasn't been opened, Macca. Only There's in actually three uh, of them here. Only in Queensland. It's the Townsville one that covers Mount Isa, Ayers, Charters, Towers, Bowen and Ingham. And it's in pristine condition. Plastic is still on it. And, yeah, in the, in the outside the caravan park, got the dog in the background, so you might hear her in the background. Tommy, uh, nice to talk to you this morning. Oh, there you go. There you go. Saying, saying day, Macca. Saying day. Professors, engineers, geologists, facetists, surveyors and speleologists are ringing from the rock on a Sunday morning. Yeah, Macca in the morning turns my week around. He picks me up when I feel down. I wait all week for Macca on a Sunday morning. Ooh, it's cold this morning for Nancy's chooks. They're walking dogs, they're writing books as Trevor stacks his bottles by the roadside. On you, Trev. In Turak, T.I., Tumbarumba, at the Lodge and Yarralumla. They might be listening to Macca on a Sunday morning. My week starts with Macca on a Sunday morning. Uh, on the road, on the road. Uh, good morning and welcome wherever you are. It's uh, an amazing... Don't you think it's just to watch what's happening in London at the moment and in Wales and in Scotland and even in Northern Ireland? Just amazing. The scenes, you'll never see it again, kids. You'll never see it again. So just whatever your thoughts are about the... And the best thing to do, of course, it's all very well for... You know, we have all these people over overseas from all the television channels and they're sitting there saying the same thing over and over again. If they want a perspective on what's going on, they should talk to the people all the time. Much more interesting. There's a lady I read in the, uh, in the Aussie the other day and she said, um, she's not a great fan of the royalty, she said, but I came to pay my respects to the Queen because I think she's done a very good job um, and went and just said what a great job the Queen had done. She said, but I fear for the future of the royalty because she said, and I'm just paraphrasing her, she said, King Charles will start banging on about climate change and he'll politicise the uh, royals and uh, that'll be that's what her perspective now you'll get great perspectives by talking to people in the in the queues and most of them and like Charles and William are doing I just watched that last night as I went to bed um they yeah they're just talking to the people that's the way you go that's the way you go speaking of which I have a picture here sent to me by Anne Anne Sprague and there's two four six kids kids with well, teenagers probably standing on top of telephone boxes in London, uh, getting a better view of the uh, proceedings. <laughs> she says, chanced upon this pick of folks taking advantage of the phone box to get a better view of procession in London. Love that your callers have this real thing going, ringing in from phone boxes all over the place. Says Anne, thank you, Anne. Very nice, very nice. 
Maka would love to see you in this patch of paradise, uh, that is Araluan Botanical Park in Rolleystone, Western Australia. The tulips are in full bloom, currently with thousands of visitors passing through. Beautiful gardens, waterfalls, parklands and flowers all year round. The Grove of the Unforgotten is a meaningful and peaceful spot. We feel privileged that Boss Simons and Co. Company saw the foresight to establish this park back then for all to still enjoy today. Great history. Come and visit us, says Connie. Connie, we'll try. We'll try to get to lots of places. I'll give you the number, 1300 700 wherever you are, uh, macatracks at gmail.com. Um, the Desert Song Festival, Our Springs. Will there be some ABC coverage of this amazing event on TV and radio, says Anne and Raina. I'm sure many of us would love to hear some of the amazing work, energy and voices of this festival. Ah, the Desert Song Fest. That's when's that next month, Kel? In October, isn't it? Is that right? Oh, today's the last day, isn't it? Yeah, the operas next next month. That's right. The um, Olive Pink Operas next month. The, the Desert Song. Well, I don't know if it was. I didn't see. I haven't been watching much TV. We've been on the road to Korokai. On the road to Korokai. Uh, and so I don't know, but I'm sure there must have been some local coverage. You'll find it. You can usually find anything if you look hard enough. Um. <laughs> and from Jono, who was there, or from... Did you know Jono's first name was Ian, but spelled E-O-I-N, which is Welsh, isn't it? Is that right? John, yeah. A little bit about Winnie Atwell this morning. Uh, we should talk to John, our um, bass-playing technical producer. Um, he played with Winnie Atwell from time to time. She toured all over the place, but more of that later. Um Jono says, Jono was there at Korokai. Did you enjoy Korokai? We really did. And lots of emails about how people enjoyed it, which is really nice. Good morning to Ron Couch of Wagga. That's a truck company. And Camden Haulage, uh, Penske Truck Rentals and GI Transport of Mildura. I just like looking at trucks on the road. Uh, Jono says, my wife is a hard marker, but she... But she volunteered that the Korokai show was very well done. Diverse, interesting and sensitive. It has really struck a chord with us in the Northern Rivers. Thank you, says Jono. Jono, thank you for coming. It was great. We, we thought, we were told by someone who knows that there was between 700 and 800 people there in the little main street of Korokai, which was lovely. And as I said earlier this morning, the sight of the sun coming up through the trees across the Richmond, uh, as we turned around, was at our back. But it was a beautiful, beautiful sight. Getting up early in the morning to see the sunrise is uh, a lovely thing. Uh, 1300 700 222. Give us a ring wherever you are. G'day, this is Macca. Uh, good morning, Macca. It's Trevor Richards here, and I'm presently at Coffin Bay on the Air Peninsula in South Australia. Good morning. And I was just re- Good morning. And I was just ringing up to let you know that the Quandongs uh, are in fruiting at the moment and ripe, mm. and there's a, a flock of uh, emus that are in here enjoying the ripe the uh, ripe quandongs off the trees, straight off the trees. What well, they you, have you, a beautiful well, they have a beautiful um, walk along the edge of the uh, bay, and it's a nature reserve, oh, I see. and it's looked after by locals. And there's lots of quandong trees there, um, and you're not allowed to pick them because it's the public and the uh, public zoned 
and they leave the uh, Kwandongs for, for the emus to, to, which is their favourite fruit at this time of the year. Really? Isn't that a lovely thing? Yeah. They're, um, it is. Um, we, yeah, we were, uh, we were up at, uh, where were we? Corn. There was a bloke up there. It's passed now, but um, he, uh, he grew them and he said the CSIRO had been there. Because it's the native peach, isn't it, the Kwandong? Y- yes, yeah, they, it's, they, it's, it's called the native apricot. Yeah, yeah, they grow about the size of a ten cent piece. Yeah, round, and when they're ripe, they're orange. Yeah, and we had um, uh, they're a bit like Davo's plum, Davidson's plum. They're very, very can be very bitter, but you put a little bit of sugar in them, and they're just beautiful, beautiful stewed yes. or stewed, jams, uh, jams, beautiful Kwandong jam, Kwandong stew with ice cream and cr- oh, whipped cream. <laughs> they're beautiful. <laughs> Isn't that a lovely thing to do? Have a have a reserve with Kwandongs there. Beautiful. Yeah, it is. It is. They're nice. Yeah. So what's your story, Trevor? Uh, so I'm from uh, Morpus in the Hunter Valley, and I'm just down here with a mate. Uh, where it's a little, the Air Peninsula is one part of Australia that we haven't been to yet. And so we're just filling in that uh, patch. So we've spent a couple of weeks here, got a few days to go before we head back to the, back to the big smoke. Oh, that's a very nice thing to do. I'll have to look at that little reserve there at Coffin Bay um, with Kwandongs and emus. I love emus. They're just a very Australian bird, aren't they? Lots of... Yeah, well, they just wander throughout the village here. Um, in and out of people's front and backyards. No one seems to be concerned about them. And uh, the males, of course, have got their chicks at the moment at their side. <clears throat> and they're looking after them, so it's a very, very nice thing to do. Oh, it's just fantastic. The emu, the emu, the lovely bird and the eggs and carving emu eggs and cooking. When I first came across emu eggs, I was a little tacker and went to the bush to my auntie's place and... Uh, and uh, <laughs> I learned about the fact that you could use an, an emu egg which equaled about uh, a dozen chook eggs. Is that right? Something, yeah, some, some, yeah, they're big eggs. So they, yeah. they'd put it in a, a, like a Christmas cake. You'd use uh, uh, an emu egg for you know, Christmas cake and um, make it beautiful and rich and all those sort of things. All right. Uh, anything okay. else to report, Trevor? No. no, that's about it. What, what do you do in the Hutter? In the Hutter, I run some art galleries there. Oh, I see. How's the art yes. business going, Trevor? I'm um, extremely well, thank you. Is extremely it really? Well. I would have yes, thought people are booming, keeping their money in their pocket from. No, in bad times, the art business goes very well if you've got good quality art. Ah, there you go. See, we learn something every day. Good on you, Trevor. Okay, thank you. See bye, you, mate. Maker. Bye, bye. From Chris Buck, listen to this, kids. I'm the engineer that could have spoken to you last Sunday at Korokai. Two apologies. One, my superior officer made me move on before we could speak. And after four hours and 30 minutes from 5.30 a.m., kick-off continuously, running like a scalded cat, you probably had a little left uh, needing of a chat. No, we had a lot of people there. It's very confronting when you've got 800 people in front of you. You don't know who to talk to and you just walk, walk around and do your best. It's a bit, yeah, it's a bit like that. Anyway, uh, Chris says, congratulations on an excellent Korokai uh, performance. <laughs> um on Sunday, I would have liked to say that Friday, I felt like weeping for the world as we'd just lost such a bastion of respect and dig- dignity, talking about the Queen. What is badly needed today is the teaching in schools from earlier stages of the importance of respect and dignity. All children get currently taught are my rights. With such active expanded teaching, we might then see significant reductions in the incidence of horrendous domestic violence events. Perhaps you might rhetorically ask Australia when will both respect and dignity again become uh, 
taught by Australian educationalists. They need to be taught at home too, Chrissy, don't they? Had you asked me where I come from, I would have said I have a home in Brisbane, but a country home in Korokai today, today, because <laughs> he was with us. Though in the last six weeks, my country home has been in Thargaminda, Eramanga, Windora, Cooper Creek, Birdsville, the Diamantina, Batuta, Inaminka, or Cooper Creek, Cameron's Corner, Tibberborough, uh, Tilpa, the Burke on the Darling, Lightning Ridge and Nindigully Pub. As I love a sunburnt country, a land of sweeping plains, ragged mountain ranges, droughts, flooding rains, I could provide a 5,600 roads report. Australia is often very dry, but currently lots of the outback has water everywhere. And speaking of which, I'll just put my thumb on the, this email. Um, lots of water. We had, uh, we've had a couple of people travelling Australia and seen... Who was in the... Um, Peter was in uh, Forbes on the banks of the Lachlan. He said the Lachlan's running a banker. And then when Guy Barley was flying near West Wyalong and he said, you look down, there's a lot of water everywhere. Some parts are dry, but there's a lot of water everywhere. And I fear for the future because apparently we've got La Nina 3. Sounds like a boat in the America's Cup, doesn't it, Kill La Nina 3 um, uh, heading for us. Um, anyway, water everywhere, says, uh, continues Chris Buck. We were lucky to get through many areas between storms. I used to hold a senior position for central Queensland water supplies. I did an analysis at that time, which indicated from 1880 to 90 rainfall records that almost no rain fell for four years straight, rendering most water storages unsatisfactory. Until my return to Brisbane, I didn't know Australia has two very large meteorite strikes about 128 million years ago in the central Australian Eramanga Sea with one near Eramanga. There is nothing left to see at the ground level, but geologists have identified the impact sites. Apparently, we had a much smaller Gulf of Carpentaria strike near Groot Island as late as 500 AD. wonder if your last Sunday's barge caller knows of that. <laughs> Probably doesn't. Which brings me to an engineering assessment of the Rich and, Richmond and Wilson rivers, and that's where Korokai is. It's the junction of those two rivers. A human problem is that we tend to recognise only human memory events and do not recognise a lot of obvious things around us. Quite recently, there have been African Nile River flooding reports even with their new dams. For some 10,000 years of recorded history, the Nile flooding has been considered a godsend with Pharaoh's help. But today, yes, flooding is disastrous, but we have a short-term emotive media cycle to feed with droughts and floods, photo newsworthy. My thoughts exactly. You may be unaware that Australian towns have already been moved due to flooding. In the 20th century, due to flooding, Clermont and Miles in Queensland have both been moved. This is my third Richmond-Wilson Rivers visit since recent catastrophic flooding. Perhaps Lismore ought to be at least partially relocated to surrounding high ground. Another matter you covered was silting of the flooded rivers from the very obvious upstream erosion and new downstream sandbanks. You mentioned late 19th and early 20th century river mouth engineering works. Local Richmond councils and the state government ought to analyse the new Richmond River silting as it will make future flooding potentially worse without some attention. Korokai and Surrounds have had a terrible time, though we cannot change that they are on the Richmond River floodplain and I would not be suggesting any relocation. On somewhere of a down note, it would seem likely that worse Richmond River floods could occur, but we should all worry much more that somewhere around the world a super volcano will go off and that will be much worse, an extinction event for us all. 
did you know that Yellowstone National Park supervolcano is already well overdue? The Queensland capital of Brisbane on the Brisbane River seems to have a more problematic river flooding issue and forecasts for which there are no complete solutions either. The attached graph shows Brisbane River floods back to 1830. In 1974, uh, says Chris, it's Chris, isn't it? Chris Buck. In 1974, as a junior engineer, I was involved in the 1974 Brisbane flood analysis. The... 1974 Brisbane flood, a recent big one, was a 5.5 metre flood. The attached graph shows five actually similar and bigger floods, up to 8.3 metres, but worse, a Brisbane 10 metre flood is considered by experts as possible. Relocation is not feasible and dams will make little difference to the really big one. The Brisbane River, after the disastrous 1893 flood, sorry, to reduce flooding risks needed, 1896 to 1930, dredging, river training walls, more than those on the Richmond River at Ballina and more to enable it to be swept clean by tidal flows. Unfortunately, Brisbane River dredging has some 20 years ago stopped and silting is already already visibly reoccurring again, bringing a risk of greater future flood damage. Perhaps this is all the fault, uh, concludes Chris, of Dorothea McKellar, who loved a sunburnt country. The greatest country in the world and I wouldn't want to live anywhere else. What about you? Says Chris Buck. <laughs> Thank you, Chris. Great to talk to you. 1300 700 222, that's our number. Uh, g'day, this is Macca. G'day, Macca. Andrew Sinclair ringing from England. G'day, Andrew. What are you doing? Well, it started out as a bit of an idea and it sort of changed along the way because a few things have been happening. Mm. So I left Australia at the start of September and came over to go to an air show at Bournemouth, which is on the coast south of, Eng- uh, south of London. And uh, that was great. And then the idea was to walk the Thames. I'd attempted to walk the Thames three years ago and a little thing called COVID happened. Um, So I resumed my walking and uh, I've done that over the last two weeks and I've basically finished the Thames now. But on the first day of the walk, I ran into a couple called Simon and Lisa who I had last met 10 years ago in Winton. And I hadn't seen or communicated with them in uh, Winton, Queensland. And I'd helped them out with spare tyres for their motorcycles. And Lisa is a woman, I suppose, early 60s. And she's ridden around 500,000 miles on a motorcycle around the world. And I ran into them and they asked me to come to their motorcycle expedition that they had on near Oxford. So that was the start <laughs> of the walk. And then... I wandered along from Oxford and uh, saw some amazing people doing wonderful things for charity. Um, Some were running 100 kilometres along the river, which is obviously sheer madness, I mean, along the river track. Um, I saw another 70 or 100 rowing crews who were rowing through the locks and they were covering something like uh, 70 miles down the the river, Uh, again for charity, very inspirational. And today, obviously, the last few days I've been in London when, of course, it's a momentous time in history. For I'll sure. say, it's, amazing. it's just, a, I look at it, it's just amazing, isn't it? The outpouring of grief and, and all sorts of things. And I think it's, in some ways, it's, it's been very good for the, we talk about mental, mental health and stuff like that. And, and, and everybody says the mental health of the world is, you know, on a down. I think in some ways this has 
brought up certainly certainly in London certainly in London um, and for the people in England seems to have brought this lifted their spirits in a bizarre sort of a way Andrew I'm not sure oh look look it's extraordinary I went from my accommodation um, on I'm just trying to get the days right here uh, a couple of days ago, when the Queen came from Buckingham Palace down to where she's lying in state now, mm. and I was fortunate enough to get a, a, a square metre of ground on the Mall opposite St James Palace, and I was in for a four-hour wait, so I sat myself down on the, the ground there, and everyone else, the English, of course, love queuing, you know that, so <laughs> they were all... They were all queued up against the barriers, and I sat down for three and a half hours. And there was a little English lady behind me and her husband, and you could hear her under breath saying, "Oh, he's he's very rude. He's sitting down. He's taking up the space. He's taking up the space." And I just sat down, didn't say a word, sat down. I was just eating the sandwiches and looking at the phone. And about half an hour before the show began, I stood up, and about thirty seconds later, I hear the voice. He's very tall, isn't he? He's very tall. He's blocked my view. <laughs> and I felt like turning around saying I should have kept seeing it. You so, can't, you can't anyway, win, Andrew. You can't win. <laughs> no, I, you can't win. I had too many wheat mix as a kid, I think, was a problem. And my, uh, my other part of this trip was to come today. A very good friend of mine in England asked me to go to the Bluebell Steam Railway. Mm. And it was fantastic. I just spent the day at the Bluebell Steam Railway down. At, uh, I'm staying overnight at his place at Worthing, which again is basically due south of London on the coast. Mm. And tomorrow we're going to the Goodwood Motor Racing, which is historic motor racing from the sort of 40s, 50s and 60s. Oh, yeah, I've heard about which that. Will be, which will be fantastic. And then I've been silly enough to choose to have a flight that's leaving... Heathrow in the middle of the royal funeral tomorrow <laughs> oh, on Monday. Sorry, I've got my dates wrong. Uh, so you're not going so, to go. To the, you're not going to go to that. Well, I suppose it's ridiculous to get in there. They said they say London's full, or they've said it a million times on the television. It's London's full. It's going to be full. Look, Macker, it's very full. There's lots of people there. Um, I've got to say, the amazing thing was there was a lot of talk as uh, we're waiting for the procession to come down the. Uh, the Mall, and it was a lot of chit-chat, whatever, and it just went dead silent for two minutes before uh, the procession got to where I was. It was ap- You could hear a pin drop. It was unbelievable. Um, and then everyone resumed normal conversation, you know, a minute or two after they'd gone past, but it was all very reverent. But um, I just read in the newspapers here that I think it's 15% of flights from Heathrow are going to be cancelled or delayed or rescheduled so they don't want to interfere with the service and also then uh, the the Windsor Castle bit, which I think is 3.30 in the afternoon or something like that. And my flight's scheduled to take off when the funeral kicks off, so I reckon I might be sitting in the lounge for a while. <laughs> Andrew, it's uh, as I say, I can't get over it. I can't um, get over how momentous this has been. I mean, the Queen's died and she was a good gal and she was, as uh, my last um, correspondent said, it was about dignity and, and all those sorts of things. Oh, and, absolutely. And all those things that seem to be lacking in today's world. It's all about me, as my correspondent said. But um, yeah. I I just, I, 
I think it's quite amazing. And as you said, um, that's a great description of how it just went dead silent. And and I, I really do think it has lifted people's spirits in a, in, a, in a strange sort of way. And they they seem to embrace Charles. I don't think Charles is... I suppose he's been in the waiting, you know, in the wings for so long that, you know, he just seems like a, you know, an addition. But now he's... Uh, He's adopted it all and never embraced him. I watched a bit of it last night just before I went to bed, as I said, about 10 or 11 o'clock last night. And um, and uh, they just um, they just want to touch him. Do you want to touch him? That's, was that Gary Glitter? Do you want to touch And they're shaking <laughs> Well, we won't and, go down that path. No, I know, I know, I know, I know. Not... You know what I'm saying, Andrew. They, he just, yeah, everybody, absolutely. Everyone would well, shake hands and it was just lovely. Well, he's had a fair crack at... Um... Uh, watching how to do it and practicing, yeah. so yeah. I think now that he's in the traces, he'll probably perform okay. Andrew, what's your, what's your what's your deal? What's your story? What do you do? Oh, <laughs> this will be good, kid. Retired, I got a hey. God, just telling the listeners, this will be good, kids. Wait for this. Yeah, come on. No, no, really. There will be people who know me out there who'll be laughing fit and not and saying, "Don't ever ask Andrew what he does." They'll be laughing. I'll have people around Australia who will be listening to this. I know they listen back. Hello, everyone. Yes, you know I'm here. <laughs> and uh, I reckon I won't get any sleep tonight because I reckon the phone's going to keep ringing all night. So. Uh, but um, no. Does that uh, mean you've got well, a lot of friends, or we got a lot of listeners? Both. Well, both, Macca, both. Um, no, I, I've done a few things. I used to fly balloons, and if you've got a, got a chance one day, I can tell you about the new balloon flight over Byron Bay. That's a hell of a laugh, but probably not suitable for this morning. No, not, a, not on Sunday morning. Andrew, how, just tell me, where does the Thames go to and from? Uh, well, it starts in a little tiny place. Uh, it's up basically north northwest of the Cotswolds, or essentially in the Cotswolds, and it begins as a, a ring of stones in a paddock, and it's called Cricklade. It's, it's the closest sort of settlement. There's a pub there. Um, uh, the river's dry for about... Because uh, they're having a drought over here. Their version of a drought's not quite our version, but um, they're having a drought. It's about five mile, I suppose, eight kilometres till you get the first running water currently. Uh-huh. Uh, and then you get your first uh, canal boats at another place called Letch Laid. And then it's it's canals all the way down to Teddington, which is sort of the outskirts of London. Uh, and then it keeps on running to the Thames Barrier, which is about uh, just past the O2 uh, stadium down in London, so it, that's maybe 15k past by walking. Uh, mm. Maybe about 15k past the Tower Bridge. So, and what's it like in uh, London today? And and uh, quite warm. Oh, beautiful! Beautiful day today. Absolutely beautiful. Mm. Um, I'm a Brisbane boy, but it's like uh, well, ex Melbourne, I should say. Uh, it's like Melbourne in oh, I don't know March. <laughs> really smooth, calm, beautiful oh. blue skies. Come. Lovely, lovely weather over the next few days. Andrew, we'll keep in touch, mate. Nice to talk to you. <laughs> This is the All Over News. This is the All Over News with some stories from up on the northern rivers of New South Wales where we've just come back from. Now, some years ago, I met a recently retired couple who, for reasons best known to themselves, decided on a career in agriculture post-retirement. 
Well, horticulture, really, growing lettuce. It turned out to be a tale of woe. Frost, flood, wind, fungus, you name it, they had it. When I asked if they had any advice for retirees looking for a business opportunity in agriculture post-retirement, the wife paused a while and said, don't. Up in the Northern Rivers the other day, I met a similar couple, but their experience seems somewhat better. Meet Jane and Jose. In front of me, I have a lovely bottle of lime juice cordial grown by... Jane. How are you, Jane? And and Jose. Where do you do this? At Namolgai, just outside of Lismore. Namolgai. Means scrub turkey in Indigenous language. How long have you been doing that? Bought the farm in 2001 and we started doing the cordial in 2006. And how come? Well, the juice, the the premium limes were going to Woolworths with a group of us and the, the ones that weren't premium grade were just going to juice to Nudie factory in um, Sydney and the factory burnt down. So we got stuck with a heap of really good limes but ones that we couldn't get top dollar for so we started to make the cordial and somebody just said look by that time we were doing farmers markets said why don't you put it in a bottle and see if you can get it, see if you can sell it. And probably within about two months of making it a friend told us about the Sydney Fine Food Show, so we sent a bottle down to them and we, we won a silver medal in the very first, well, two months after we started production. So it's just been going really well since then and we've won four gold medals and various other medals, mainly Hobart Fine Food Show. Actually, the whole lot just gets sold locally in the what? Byron area, Byron, Bangalow, Lismore area, really. What's it like being a farmer? <laughs> <laughs> That's a facetious question. I'm just yeah. <laughs> it's a love and hate relationship. <laughs> Sometimes you know when the weather's good we love it. When the weather's bad we hate it. We're on the hill, but the night that Lismore got flooded, we got 800 mils of rain that night. So it, even though we're on the side of a hill, we got it through our ceiling. That's about three feet of rain, isn't it, in the old scale? Yeah, it's just it's unbelievable. It's like they turned the tap on above the house and forgot to turn it off. There you go. And this is Jose, is this it? This is Jose. What's the story with you and Jose? Well, is he the farmer or you're the... We had, I had retired. I had a, a business in Cairns exporting fish all around the world, filling up public aquariums That was and pet shops all around Australia and overseas. What Our sort of fish? All tropical fish from the reef, all from the barrier reef. That marriage went kaput and I met Jose in Cairns and he had just retired from, he's a trapeze flyer from the circus. So we bought the property to put his trucks and my horse and neither of us had any interest in farming or knew anything about farming so it was really just, he wanted to be close to the surf because he liked surfing and I wanted somewhere that I could, you know, ride my horse and we sort of drew a triangle on the map and I said anywhere between Byron Bay and Grafton sort of in there and we just looked at endless properties and this one came up, it'd been on the market for years and years, they couldn't sell it and that was because, you know, no one who knew about farming would buy it only people like us <laughs> would buy it. So we bought it and had all these lime trees on it and had all these custard apples and we didn't know anything about farming. And people said, well, you've got, you got to get in touch with these people and you take your produce to this pack house, you know, and they'll pack it out for you and, you know, they'll deal with all your, you know, where it's got to go to. And so that's what we did for a while. <laughs> Neither of our children are interested in it, <laughs> that's for sure. They actually named the farm Rancho. Our farm's called Rancho Relaxo. And because Jose's two boys are, were circus performers and they'd come to the farm to get a bit of relaxo and practice their acts, you know. And my children were up in Cairns. His, his were in Melbourne and Sydney and mine were in Cairns. So they just drop through every now and then and look at us and think we were mad, you know. 
And my daughter's saying to me, Mum, but you retired at 37. What are you doing this for? What are you doing this for, you know? And I said, well, you know, I'm still my own boss. And that was pretty much how, you know, we've just been really... We're not brilliant farmers, but we're lucky we've got good soil and things grow well. And we've had the farmer's market to supply. We do four a week, so... And that's been a big change to agriculture, hasn't it, farmer's markets? Look, our farm wouldn't have been viable without doing that. No way in the world. You have to be a price taker. And your other half here is Jose. Where's Ho- where were you from, Jose, originally? I born in Spain, northern Spain, yeah. Uh-huh. But I've been here many years. And I... you were a circus? Yeah. Wow. I... How ex- did you run away to the circus like that? No, I got to the school, circus school in Spain, which was the, the second in the world. We got a very good show, and then we took it all around the world. She's a man on the flying trapeze. Yes, and then we come to Australia. So just, no, no, all, all gone. Oh, yes, I was just feeling <laughs> Jose's arms, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah, and, um, I'm 70 years now. So. Yeah. Anyway, we come to Australia. We go to all the cities. And then Aston Circus gave me a contract for 12 months to work here. And I'm still here. Good life, travelling around the world? Very good life. People call gypsy or whatever, but it's one of the best lives you can have. I've been around Australia about 25 times, all the little towns, everywhere. Well, Jane and Jose, lovely to meet you both. I must say, you do a great job. You make the world a very small place. Thank you, Jose, and thank you, Jane. Thank you. I'm in Wardell. Uh, talk, what's your name? Nicholas. How are you, Nicholas? I'm extremely well. Look at this wonderful weather. Yeah, it's beautiful, isn't it? Tell me your Wardell story. You've lived here for how long? Only a couple of years. We lived on a property further out in the uh, Clarence Valley. My wife and I are both getting on a bit. It was getting a bit of hard work, you know, looking after a property. So we downsized. And uh, as a result of that, I had a bit of spare cash. So I, uh, You bought yourself a flash sports car? Yes, indeed. <laughs> Why not? So here we are, we're downsized, we're very happy, we're living in a local retirement park. Life couldn't be better, really. So what did you do? You were a farmer for oh, all no, your life? No, no, no. My background is engineering and surveying. My last job was on the Gateway Bridge up in Brisbane. But we've, we've always lived in the bush rather than the city. Both my wife and I are both ponds, my wife very much so. <laughs> I've been here for, since 1969. I've travelled all over the place, working mostly, doing construction work and mining, exploration, all sorts of things. How have you seen a town like Wardell deal with what's happened over the last six months? Resilience is astounding, absolutely astounding. The way these people have come together is a joy to behold, really. We, as you probably know, Wardell was under four or five feet of water. We were lucky. We lived just two k's up the road and we, we were marooned, but we survived. But the poor people down here suffered an awful lot. But they, everyone had just mucked in. We were out of food. The whole of our park was out of food because we, we, we had, nobody had any food. There's no power, no internet, no nothing. But everybody mucked together, dug in their non-working freezers and got food. And we all shared it around. We had barbecues every night and everybody just helped everybody else. It, it was a wonderful thing to see. I mean, it's a dreadful thing that happened, but it's the way the community came together, which was so encouraging. Tell me about being an engineer. How did you become an engineer? I was fascinated by engineers. They, they seem to put their finger on the pulse and fix things. Yes, from an engineer's point of view, a problem is what you live for. It's solving problems, that's what you do. But um, my engineering has been more in construction and exploration work. I, know I was involved in, in the Poseidon thing. Do you remember that? Oh, Back in the goldfields? Nickel, nickel in nickel. West Australia. Yes, I was, I was there during the... That was a mad time. I got shot at twice. Because, did you make any money? Oh, I could have done. I could have done because we actually, at one stage, we, um, we were doing uh, some exploration work up in the Leonora. We were having a feed in the pub there. 
and our geologist looked across the table and saw another, one of his mates from Kalgoorlie School of the Mines. And he went over and had a chat to him and he came back and he said, I've got to get back to Perth. He said, they've just had assay results of their last drilling. And he said, they've hit it big. This was Poseidon. He was an engineer. So we had state-of-the-art information. I had a sister who used to work for Merrill Lynch and she always said to me, don't buy stocks and shares, too dangerous. So I missed out. But my geologist friend did very well. So, I mean, you know, it's uh, swings and roundabouts. But no, I've had an extraordinarily good life. Done all sorts of things from acting to shearing sheds and... Goodness knows what else. Fishing and life's been very good to me. I mean, I came to Australia in 1969 by accident. I had no intention of coming here. I had a job that took me to Indonesia. And on the way home, I got as far as Singapore, and somebody showed me a map. And I thought, oh, God, Australia's just over there. While I'm here, I'll just pop over for a look. Of course, I never left. <laughs> Nicholas, nice to meet you. My pleasure. Oh, on the line is our correspondent, Debbie Smith, uh, who was at Coraco. Good morning, Debbie. Morning, Ian. How are you? I'm good, thank you. I just played that song before called Backpacker, and I was th- and and it was written in a time when we backpackers were all over the place. You couldn't walk around the corner without bumping into a backpacker because they were doing all sorts of stuff and travelling around Australia and um, geeing up the economy. I don't know if we've got any, but um, I, I suspect it's hard to get people to because whatever you say, they were they were usually willing workers weren't they um uh, backpackers and they did a lot of work that nobody else seems to want to do i know it's it's shortage of staff is a huge issue for um all small businesses and agriculture i'm in stanthorpe today Ian, and um it's a it's a major issue down here as well uh that we need to i think we've made some mistakes around after the covid and be during the covid about you know sending international students home but it's time to get it fixed. It's um, really important for our all of our small business economies. We just can't get staff. Uh, and so, I mean, that's it's really. But what do you do? Do you uh, do backpackers still want to come here, or what? Well, I suppose they do. I don't know. They've when we hear about overseas countries, they've forgotten. You know, they were saying that to me six months ago. We've forgotten about COVID. We've just moved on from from COVID. And uh, but yeah. we we were still worrying about it at the time, weren't we? Well, we were. Um, and look, I'm not a health health professional, so I can't give advice about that. All I know is that, that for the Australian economy and the Australian communities to progress, we need to have small business growing and we need to have agriculture growing and we need a workforce. And it's really, really difficult to, um, to grow um, or even to service your current customers if you don't have staff. I mean, we're critically short in, um, in, in my small businesses and I know my industry is as well. Um, where where have all the people gone? Um, that's and I'm in Queensland, and half of Victoria have moved to Queensland, but that we still don't, can't get staff. So mm. um, it is in, it is important that um, it, that the government focus on it with their jobs and skills skills summit. But we can't just talk about it. We need to get people here on the ground. Uh, and I don't think anyone's got any answers about uh, people not wanting to work. Because, but there's obviously a lot of people who don't want to work. Maybe they're getting paid enough, and they don't like. I don't know. Uh, it's like. Well, I think the num- the numbers are that there's you know less than four percent unemployment in Australia, and maybe those folks just are unemployable. So we just have to factor that into what we do, um, because you can't put a square peg into a round hole. It never fits. And from a from a productive point of view, we just need to get people on the ground doing what they what what businesses need them to do. Businesses need to pay them properly. 
Um, we need to be able to house them properly so that everyone's comfortable. And we go back to that fair economy that we had back in um, when we were all growing and all thinking that Australia was bulletproof. Yeah, and something will have to be done about it, Deb. Now, ladies and gentlemen, Deb, Debbie's in the um, independent grocery uh, business um, and they're having shortages like in Victoria and stuff like that too, aren't they? Absolutely, yeah. Our members are crying out for not necessarily skilled migration, but it, but basically, um, you know, we're employing anyone who can walk in and has a heartbeat at this point in time so that um, we can get our stock on the shelves so that we can serve our customers and while retail, supermarket retail, um, it, it's, it creates a, it requires a good work ethic. Um, it requires um, emotional intelligence, but we really just need honest, hardworking people to be able to, to employ. And we need that through convenience stores, through our um, big supermarkets, you know, our big supermarket chains are exactly the same like Richie's and and those big independents, um, they're suffering the same thing as the small corner store. We, it, it, you know, it's putting a lot more um, effort for our owners and our store owners to be, I mean, they always work 80 hours a week, but who can fit in another 10? So that's basically the pressure it's putting on. And it's also putting pressure on our supply chains. Um, Coca-Cola have told our industry that, uh, that they're going to be 70,000 uh, truck drivers short at Christmas time. <laughs> God help me, and that's and that's just a just one example of one company, I suppose, one big company. But and yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah. But it's it it you know our, all of our warehouses, um, our loads are late. Um, we are trying to resource it to get the people on our floor so that we can get the stock off the truck to get it onto the shelves on time. And it's really hard to roster around that because. Um, you're never a hundred percent sure where the truck's showing up. So all of those pressures are, are, are true economic pressures, and they're they're reducing our productivity. Yeah, so well, it's bums on seats is what we need. Well, uh, I, I assume there'll be people in government and bureauc- bureaucracy listening this morning, and someone the message must get through. It keeps getting said. Uh, Debbie Smith, uh, ladies and gentlemen, has uh, often been to our outside broadcasts, and she was there helping us to in Korokai. It was a good morning, Deb, wasn't it? Look, Korokai was inspirational to me. Um, Ian, look, I'm I'm from Queensland and I'm on the I'm, I live in Toowoomba, um, so I've also experienced a, an extremely wet and um, an insensitive climate to to humanity in the last four years. But I thought Korokai and the community, the 800 uh, people who came to watch the program last um, last weekend. It was a real eye-opener, even for me, who has been living with the droughts on the food bowl of Queensland and then the fires and then, who knew, Queensland had a bushfire season. I've lived in Queensland for 63 years and didn't know we had one. And then all of a sudden, the, the floods. So, you know, the people, the people there were, I, I think it's insensitive to say you have to be resilient, but because you can only be resilient when you think you can control your future. And that is, is something that that community needs help with. And it was nice. They were very grateful that you were there, Ian, and I was grateful to help you put through that program. But the gratitude, gratitude is something that is not often experienced in the modern world. We all think of ourselves and 
and our families first, but these people were thinking of a bigger cause and they were grateful that you'd come. They were grateful that, that the ABC um, had not forgotten that after six months, people mm. were still living in temporary accommodation, if lucky, if that. Um, and houses were st and, and houses were not repaired. Roads didn't even look like roads. The road between um, that I went to from Korokai to Ballina, I think it used to be bitumen, but there was no <laughs> bitumen on it anymore. Yeah. So through through um, through that Broadwater area, the Broadwater school is still closed. I mean, how can you get back to a community when the school's still closed? Yeah, it's really an indictment. I think on on um, Australian governments that that we didn't recognise that this climate was changing and mm. that we needed to be able to do something about it. And when some when you, and when you've got a problem, uh, do something about it. You can't. It, it's almost like they've been ignored there, you know. And that's what that's what I think they felt. And and all I was trying to do really uh, was to say, well, look, you might have been forgotten by some, but by the Ordinary Australians who listen to us, you're not forgotten, and uh, there's not much we can do. We collected a bit of money, and there was an auction and stuff. But I think it's it was uh, it was really about you know, hey, it's like you know, giving someone a hug or saying, come and have a cup of tea. It's that sort of thing. Oh, look, and and more needs to be done. I mean, there are amazing community groups that are putting together community hubs to help to help with people's. Um, uh, mental health and give mm -hmm. them an opportunity to to be able to to work as a community to 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 improve it. Mm. But you need the physical stuff. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you need the school at Broadwater to be repaired, and you need yeah. the kids to be back in there. Yeah, you, I it's mean, it's almost like you need, you need to send the army in and fix it up till it's back to some sort of. And it's going to take a while, but you know, you've got you you know. I think they feel like it's got to be. Uh, they've forgotten. Listen, Deb, I've got to go. Um, but uh, thank you for your help last week. It was wonderful. No worries, Ian, and any time. Thank Good you. Air. Stuart's near Moree. Morning, Stuart. Morning, Macca. How are you? Yeah, good. Yeah, I'm good. Macca left, uh, just let you know, I left Toowoomba this morning heading uh, down to the Handy Field Days next week. Uh, what for? We uh, manufacturers of Australian farm machinery, so we've got a, a site down there where we display and uh, a large range of customers that we look after. In that Wagga Riverina area, is this the first year of the um, Handy Field Days for a while? Did did they have one last year or year before? No, no. This will be the first one since I think nineteen Macca. Yeah, so that'll be big, eh? Hope so. Um, just yeah, as long as we can all get there with the the water. I've come over the the Guider. It's got a run in it. Me high here at Moree. It's got a good run in it. So lots of water. Yeah. What do you make, Stuart? What sort of things do you make? Uh, Macca, we make planters, air seeders, uh, cultivators. We can we can do everything with a crop planted. We can fertilise it. We can cultivate it. We can do everything but harvest it. And where do you, where do you do this? In Toowoomba. In Toowoomba. There you go. So uh, yeah. and so, it's worthwhile for you to travel from Toowoomba down to Handy. And I suppose a lot of people do that right around Australia, don't they? Yeah, definitely. It's uh, it's a way of of getting. Uh, your product uh, in front of the customers. We do have a customer base down there, and um, it's yeah. You just got to keep going back, showing them 
what's new, what's different. If there's not, you still got to turn up and see your existing customers and hopefully you find that new customer. And how is it being in business in Australia? Is it still as hard as it ever was or is it getting easier? Or At the moment, I'll say it's probably harder. It's getting harder. Um, and, and listening this morning, it's, it's staff, it's, it's transport. Um, you've just got to try and work with it. The conditions we've been through in these last couple of years does make it, uh, throws out those new challenges. You've just got to keep checking back orders, stuff that used to be available that's not available. Um, you want to be able to deliver that machine to your, to that Australian farmer. We make it and, um, yeah, and get that next crop in. And you've got this dichotomy because I know in your business, in every business, if you've got inflation, you're in, you're in big trouble. And so here in Australia we have, on the one hand, we have uh, – uh, the Reserve Bank wanting to increase interest rates so that so that to keep a lid on inflation, and then there's another push that says no, don't do that, don't do that because we might lose office. Uh, governments don't like increases in interest rates, and people who've got mortgages don't like interest rates. But but it seems to me that um, if you don't bring down inflation, it'll all go to hell in a handbasket. That's right, and and, and we've come off the back of of. Uh what the government can do and, and have that instant tax write-off. We manufacture truck bodies and stock crates for cattle and horses and, and we've seen a in that last two years or yeah two and a half years the amount of extra orders we got in was just fantastic and it's on the back of the government doing that incentive but now they take it away or it runs out yes how do we keep that stimulated to keep businesses like ourselves, keep staff employed uh, and keep it going to to make it worthwhile for the business. Well, let's hope Handy's good for everybody, uh, uh, mate, and uh, that you, you know, make some sales, but that you, that the um, the feeling you get around the place is uh, a bit positive because we need that, don't we? And uh, um, I, as Debbie said before uh, about, um, you know, uh, what what did she say about resilience? If you oh. you need resilience, you've got to have you've got to have some hope for the future. If you that's the only way you'll get resilience. If you don't think there's any hope for the future, well, resilience will go out the window. So let's hope you find a bit that's of that. That's right, and, handy. and and it's all agriculture's all I've ever done. I'm not that old, but all my working life it's been in farming. And when it's tough, it's bloody tough. When it's good, it's very good. You just yeah, you've got to be ready for the good times. You've got to be ready for the bad times. Um, and that's just planning and working with your customers. They're always going to be there. It's just how we can justify or how we can have other irons in the fire to, to keep a business going and, and employ staff and, and keep those good staff. Stuart, you'll wear your shoes out walking around. That's what I... That's what I love about Hendy. You've got to walk miles, and the big field days, Gunnedah. Well, you've got to walk miles. They're like they're like small cities, aren't they? They are. You've got to uh, yeah, definitely have your your most comfortable boots, whether they're the ugliest ones, but you still need some good boots. And um, yeah, for us, you're standing on your side all day. Uh, mm. Whereas yes, the, the the punters have got to walk around and, and come and find us. Stuart, tell me, is this, is the roads passable at Moree? Is there water over the road? What's the story? No, all good so far. Um, from when I left Toowoomba this morning, uh, 
yeah, no problems yet. Um, the, yes, the rivers are up, but all the roads are still flowing. The truck drivers are still coming towards me, so hopefully I can continue on my way today. Stuart, nice to talk to you. Good on you, mate. Thanks, Macca. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.